your Bibles, turn to uh, Psalm 119, Psalm 119, 97 to 104. Let's go ahead and ask God to guide us. Father God, as we have sung, may it be reality and may we listen to your word carefully, your inspired and errant word. We ask, Father, that you would take it and apply it to our lives, that we would know that having heard your word, we are to apply it, we are to live it out, empowered by your spirit for our betterment. And for your great glory, make this reality in our lives in the name of Jesus. Amen. His name is William Tyndale. You probably know the name William Tyndale. You might even know a fair amount about him. He was probably far more erudite than his several degrees from Cambridge University. Upon finishing a master's degree at Cambridge, it seems very clear that he was asked to join the faculty at that outstanding school, but he chose not. Instead, he decided to tutor children in the home of John Welsh. Now, that may not be a name that you know, but John Welsh is a name that you might know if you come Reformation Sunday my understanding is somebody from the past is coming to visit us, not John Welsh, but he's going to tell you a little bit about that individual. Well, when William Tyndale went to John Welsh's house, you have to understand that John was a very influential individual, and many pastors and priests from both the New Protestant segment and the universal church segment of the Christian community regularly ate at John Welsh's table. And so William Tyndale was afforded a very unusual opportunity to talk to pastors, clergy, priests on both segments of the Christian community. And as he did so, he was shocked. He was, quite frankly, horrified because he realized that whether one was Protestant or one was Catholic, if you were a clergy person in the British Isles, the likelihood was very great that you didn't have a copy of Scripture, nor were you capable of reading Scripture. Very few could read Scripture in the original languages, Hebrew for the Old Testament, Greek for the New, and the only authorized translation in the British Isles was the Latin Vulgate, a Latin translation, and almost none of these priests or pastors could read Hebrew, Greek, or Latin. What that meant is that the spiritually blind were leading the spiritually blind, and they were creating sermons, probably not from Scripture, but rather they were reciting one or two Latin masses that they had memorized years earlier that they neither knew the meaning of, nor did the congregation that heard the same mass week after week know the meaning of it either. And so again, the spiritually blind were leading the spiritually blind. At one of these dinners at John Welsh's table, 
William Tyndale, who had already felt the call of God to translate the Bible into English, made this statement to a clergy person. He said, if God tarries and my life continues, I tell you that the plowboy will know more of Scripture than you do. In other words, I will place a copy of Scripture in the hand of every priest, every pastor, every plow boy, every plow girl, the commoner will have the word of God so that he or she can read it for themselves. And so William Tyndale began to translate scripture. This is the first translation of scripture in the English language. Now you may push back and say, no, 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 no. What about John Wycliffe? John Wycliffe did not translate the Bible he had a paraphrase going from Latin into English, but he did not go back to the original Hebrew or Greek. In addition, John Wycliffe's paraphrase was handwritten. It was never printed, so there were only a couple copies, which, by the way, were outlawed by the Universal Church in 1408. The result of that is during the day of William Tyndale, the early three uh, decades of the 16th century, nobody had a copy of Scripture in the English language. And so William Tyndale began to translate the Bible, Old and New Testament, into English. The fact of the matter is it became exceptionally dangerous because of the Tudor monarchs, not the least of which was Henry VIII, who had declared this to be a capital offense. And so William Tyndale had to flee for his life, and he went to Worms, Germany, where he finished the translation. It then went to press, and 6,000 copies of the Bible in English were disseminated on the British Isles. The Universal Church reacted against this, and found as many copies as possible and burned them at St. Paul's Cathedral. You can visit it today in London. So today we have exactly two of the 6,000 still remaining. Then he went to print with a second printing of which was far in excess of 6,000 and now scripture became available to the priests, the pastors, the plow girl, and the plow boy. For his efforts, in 1535, he was arrested and sent to a prison in Brussels without heat for 18 months. While there, he became very sick. Each and every day, his life was threatened. He was told to recant of any desire ever to have the translation of English in the hands of anyone. He refused to recant, and he was strangled to death. Then his body was burned at the stake, his dead body, and his ashes were thrown into the river Swift. His last words is reported to be these, Lord, open the eyes of the king, referring to King Henry VIII, who has opposed any clergy other than at least an archbishop who would have scripture in his own language. William Tyndale gave his life 
so that you and I could have a copy of Scripture, so that we could grow, connect, grow, go, so that we could be in the Word of God. He is just one of many women, many men, and out throughout history that gave their lives so that we could study this Word. I want to pick up and read from Psalm 119. We'll read verses 97 to 104. You'll notice the subheading above verse 97. Mem, that's the 13th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Mem. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false path or way. What an incredible biblical text. It's a text that's all about grow. Now, last week, we started a three-week series. I don't really do series, but I'm doing this one. On Highland's vision statement, connect, grow, go. So we talked about connect. Connect is the need that all of us have to be in a smaller group than a sanctuary setting, a small group with believers to spur one another on in our faith. We looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul tells us that some of us are eyes, others are ears, some of us are arms, some of us are legs. None of us are all of these together. None of us have all the spiritual giftedness in order to become a full body, in order to become all that God desires us to be. We need one another. Connect with one another. Next week, we'll look at the third, which is go. Go is the command of God to go forth to make disciples of all nations locally and globally. And today, we'll look at grow. Connect, grow, go. These three taken together are really the summation of the greatest two commandments in Matthew 22, 37 to 40, where, remember, someone came to Jesus, a religious leader, and said, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, I tell you that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is likened unto the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's a summation of the first two great commands as well as the great commission of Matthew 28. Go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples. The summation of those three things, the two greatest commandments and the great commission is connect, grow, and go. And today we're going to talk a little bit about grow. As you're probably aware, Psalm 119 is the largest, longest psalm in the Psalter. In fact, it's the longest chapter in Scripture. It's 176 verses, which is quite strategic because there are 22 consonants 
in the Hebrew alphabet. And this chapter is divided. If you look at it, it's Aleph, Beit, Gamil, Daleth, Hey, Vav, Zion, Het, Yet, Toh. It's divided by the Hebrew alphabet and each section gets eight verses. So if we go to section one, Psalm 119, verses 1 to 8, it's the Aleph section. It's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And all eight verses begin with the letter Aleph, A. What we would call A, I suppose. Not really, but we'll call it that today. The section that we are dealing with in our text for this morning, is the 13th section. It's the mem section, kind of like an M. And so the first word is ma, which means how. Isn't that something a ma would say? How did you get so dirty? How are you so late? Well, all eight verses begin with this letter mem, this word M for us. So why did the Psalter create this, this way? It's called an acrostic. There are actually seven psalms that are acrostics, and nine psalms have parts of acrostics. And when you have this, this form of poem, the reason was that it was intended by God. You ready? to be memorized. That's why we have the acrostic. So I've got to ask you, how are you doing memorizing Psalm 119? Only 176 verses. That's all it is. Only 176 verses. So this is my offer to all of you. If you memorize Psalm 119, I will take you and a friend out to lunch on me. First person to do it, you get to go. However, Pastor Jared, who works with Generation 180, he's got his own promise to you. If you're in Gen 180, he does not believe any student can memorize verses 97 to 104 faster than him. Not one. So if you memorize Chapter 119, verses 97 to 104, and you're from 8th grade to 12th grade. He will take you and four of your friends to Starbucks to buy the biggest, most expensive drink you possibly can. Game on. That's what the text is all about. It's about memorizing. I remember when I was in seminary, one of my professors, in addition to the tests he would give us and the passages we would read, he would make us memorize a segment of Scripture. Actually, this segment is part of what he made us memorize for one of my classes. And this is what he would do. I, I kid you not. Uh, you would have all the reading, maybe 3,000 pages, and you write one or two papers, and you take a couple tests. And then on the final exam, when you were done with the test, you had to flip it over, and he told you what translation you needed to memorize, and you needed to write it out, and every word you got wrong was a minus one on your final grade on the final exam. We probably had students who had less than a zero because of that segment. Now, if I were braggadocious, I would just go ahead and cite the thing to you today, but that would be a humiliation for me because what was once here 
is no longer. So what is it about this psalm that made it the longest psalm in the Psalter, the longest chapter in Scripture, and designed for the purpose that you and I would memorize it? It's all about grow. It's all about grow. It's about the centrality of Scripture in our life. Apparently, the centrality of Scripture in our life is so important that God had the entire chapter of the longest chapter in the Psalter, the longest chapter in the Bible, one of only seven Psalms written in acrostic, one of only nine sections in the whole Bible written in acrostic, so that we would memorize it, so that we would understand the centrality of Scripture, the centrality of growth in our life. Growing in faith. Growing in faith starts by being together corporately in a worship setting. It might be a connection care group. It might be part of a Sunday school class. It might be part of Word, Women of Real Devotion, or a men's Bible study, or a young adults, or journeys. It might be part of a single parenting group, or a Generation 180, or a Word, or any number of possibilities But the centrality of Scripture is the point of the text, and God doesn't want us to miss the text, so he made it 176 verses that are rather repetitive so that we would be in the Word. I wonder. I wonder how much time the average Highland attender is in the Word of God on a daily basis. I suspect for some here today the answer is probably quite encouraging. Some of you are seriously in the Word, and and what a great model you are. But I also wonder if some of us are more into other things in the Word of God. How much time do we spend on our iPhone compared to the Word of God, or our iPad, or in sports, or the arts, or Facebook, or our Pinterest page, or out doing recreation, all those things besides the Pinterest page are really important. I'm not really excited about the Pinterest page myself. But Scripture wants us to be in the Word. In the Word. You know, if we were to read all 176 verses, and I'd encourage us to do that this week, we're going to read these words. These are the words or phrases found in almost every verse. The Word, Scripture, walk in His laws, walk in His ways, your precepts, your statutes, your commandments, the way of your testimonies, your steadfast love, your rules, your words. God wants us to grow. Why? Well, there's several reasons, but the very first reason is that there is a one-to-one correlation between a blessing from God and obeying the word. Look at verse 1 of the entire chapter. It reads as follows. This is the English translation. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Do you want the blessing of God in your life? Do I want the blessing of God in my life? Then we hear the word, 
we memorize the word and we live the word out and there's a correlation that's direct between being in the word and having the blessing of God. Very often in my correspondence, I write God bless because I really want God to bless you, me, us, our community. And scripture tells me that one of the clearest ways to be in the grace and the blessing of God is not only to hear the word, but to do the word as well. You remember what James says in James 1.22, do not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. It's not enough for me to hear the word. In fact, Luke tells us in Luke 12, 48, to whom much is given, much more is expected. When I'm in the word and I hear the word and I memorize the word, but I don't live the word out, I actually make myself more culpable before God. And so there's a risk when you and I come to church. There's a risk when we're in a connection care group. There's a risk when we go to Gen 180 or, or whatever Bible study we go to, because the more of the word we hear, the more of the word God expects you, I, we, to live out. But Psalm 119.1 says there's a correlation. If you want the blessing of God, you've got to hear the word, memorize the word, know the word, and then live it out. And when we live out the word, God brings blessing into our life. Why should we grow? Second, he wants us to grow because it's a source of gaining true wisdom. That's what verses 97 to 99 say. Being in the word is a source to gaining true wisdom. This is rather important. There's a distinction between knowledge and wisdom. There's a big distinction. Today, my hope is that we're gaining knowledge. My greater hope is that knowledge will turn into wisdom, but there's no guarantee. Seminaries, Bible colleges, churn out people with knowledge. Sometimes wisdom as well. Word, women of real devotion, rightly churns out women with knowledge, and they should. One-way club rightly churns out children with knowledge. Devotions at home churns out a family with knowledge. Knowledge is understanding the historical context, the historical grammatical situation in which the text first arises. It understands some of the syntax, the grammar, maybe some of the archaeological evidence. It's a fair amount of information. But if we stay only with knowledge, we go back to Luke 12, 48, to whom much is given, much more is expected, or James 1, 22, do not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. Knowledge by itself doesn't help us, but makes us more culpable before the Lord. We need the knowledge. We should be a church about disseminating biblical knowledge. That is a huge commitment. But in order to grow, in order to fulfill verses 97 to 99, we need not only to hear the word, know the word, memorize the word, but then we need to ask ourselves some very important questions. Based on what I heard, 
What now do I know about the character of God that I didn't? Or what have I learned about the character of God that I needed to be refreshed in? What do I need to do morally or ethically to transform my life empowered by God's Spirit? What do I need to pray and ask God to work on so that I am not the same today as I was yesterday? It's not enough just to have the knowledge. We need the transformation, and the transformation is real wisdom. I really love the way Jesus puts it in Matthew 7, 24 to 27. It's a passage. It's quite familiar to us. Let me read it. Matthew 7, starting in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man. I want us to notice in Jesus' parable, both men are pew sitters. Both men go to church. Both men hear the word of God. Both men perhaps are in a connection care group or a small group or a Sunday school class. Did you ever notice that? Both men have the same input. They do, but one's called wise and one's called foolish. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Both men had the same input. Both men had the same vision. Both men wanted to build a house. They wanted a place to call their own. They wanted to build their lives, which is really what the house is. They both had the same vision. They both had the same input. They both faced the same storms. They both have wind and rain. They have inclement weather all around them, the trials of life. Everything is the same between the wise man and the foolish man. And so it's a person who comes here or another church and a second person who comes here and another church and they go to all the same events and they go through life and they have all the same difficulties and they have a vision for a, a life that is of value, all of it is utterly the same. What's the difference? One hears and does nothing. The other hears and applies. He builds his life on the rock. He doesn't just hear about the rock. He builds his life on the rock. He's listening to the word of God and saying, what do I know now about God's greatness that I didn't know before? What do I need to apply morally or ethically to my life that I haven't been doing? How do I need to pray and ask God's Spirit to guide me so that I go forth in a powerful way? Both here, both have vision, both face storms, and one, the text says, it goes splat. Verse 27, great was the fall. And so I've got to step back. And I've got to ask myself when I come to church, do I come just to learn facts or because somebody's dragged me or because I've always done it? Or am I coming and asking God, 
what do you want me to know about you? What do you want me to change, empowered by your spirit? How do you want me to live going forth? What do you want me to think going forth? And God, will you do this transformation with me in me? Look at the psalmist again. He tells us that loving God and meditating on God, verse 97, makes us wiser than our enemies, 98. He says loving God's law makes us to have more understanding than our teachers, verse 99, and more understanding than the aged, verse 100. But don't miss the key to the text. It's in verses 101, 102, and 100. Verse 100, I keep your precepts. Verse 101, I keep your word. Verse 102, I do not turn aside from your rules. In other words, it's not enough for me to hear. For me to hear puffs me up with information. I need transformation. I need change. There's a great difference between knowledge and wisdom. We need to be a church all about knowledge. We ought to be teaching the biblical truths in every area of ministry. But wisdom is not something we can teach. It's something we can model, but it's not something we can teach. Wisdom is something that each of us need to go back to the Word and say, God, work this truth in me. By your Spirit, God, help me to see you with greater vision by your spirit, God, help me to say no to sin and yes to you. Allow the knowledge that I have attained to become wisdom in what I believe and how I live. I think small groups help this way. Again, I talk about my connection care group. We've been in the same group. Uh, I'm not really sure if we've been in there three years or four years. Time kind of flies. But we get together, and as I said last week, uh, we try and uh, correct all the mistakes that were made in the sermon. We get that part done. Takes us half the night. And, uh, and then we talk about what this means in our marriage or with our kids. or We talk about application. And again, just talking about application isn't enough. We then need to leave and, and ask God to work that application in us. But a small group, whatever size or whatever type that we're in, that small group helps us to apply Scripture. I want to make one more comment about a small group. We've been in ours, let's say, four years. I'm not sure, but probably. Year one, we were all friends. And we, as friends often do, Shared a few surface things, one with another, and a few deeper things, but eh, you were a little careful with the whole group. You might share a few things with some of the group, and you just didn't know everybody. Year two, you begin to share much deeper things. In year three and year four, you're praying for one another. And, and we did something this summer where we just decided we would pray for one another's kids and grandkids each day for a week. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure we shared a few requests, but the truth is we now know each other well enough that we don't need the prayer requests unless they're specific to that time period. We know some of the strengths and, and potentially even some of the challenges 
of the extended family. So when you join a connection care group or another type of group and you're there for two months and you say, you know what, we're not really doing life together. No, you're not because you don't trust one another. And that's natural. It takes time. And if you don't give it time, you're not going to have a, a small group that really functions well. And I would say you're not talking about just a few months. You're talking about year two before you begin to function with that level of trust. William Tyndale understood how much we need growth. He understood the connect, grow, go, the, the grow part. And he gave his life up for it. That's how valuable it was for him. It may be a connection uh, growth group for you. It might be some other small group. But all of us need to connect with one another so that we can grow and do life with one another. And then we can go and show others the love of Christ. Connect, grow, go. It's not just a clever tagline or maybe not even all that clever. It ought to be a way of life. It's really biblically grounded in the inspired and errant word, connect, grow, go. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for Psalm 119, which challenges us over and over again in the plainest of language to grow deep in your word. May we grow deep. May we have the, the respect and awe for your word that people like William Tyndale and many women and men throughout history who have given up inordinate amounts of things, even human life, temporal life, in order to protect our ability to be in the world. And we have to be in the world in the name of Jesus. Amen.